you should ask us this question too again in like a year and see where we are on, on NFTs and, and also what other cool celebrities have become agog with us. Welcome to the third episode of Climate Positive, a podcast produced by Hannon Armstrong, a leading investor in climate solutions. I'm Chad Reed. I'm Hilary Langer. I'm Gil Jenkins. And in this series, we bring our unique and curious perspectives to host candid conversations with the leaders, innovators, and changemakers driving our climate positive future. According to climate scientists, even if we're able to completely transform our power, transportation, and industrial sectors to reach global net zero emissions by around mid-century, we'll still have too much carbon in the atmosphere to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. So in addition to reducing our current emissions, we'll also need to remove the carbon that's already in the atmosphere. In this episode, we sit down with Aaron Burns, Executive Director, and Gianna Amador, Co-Founder and Policy Director of Carbon 180, a leading climate policy NGO and the only one solely dedicated to removing carbon from our atmosphere. Aaron and Gianna detail how their early years in rural West Virginia and the Central Valley of California drove their passionate interest in climate policy. They also discuss how Carbon 180 has pivoted as an organization over the last six years. The most promising carbon removal technologies, including direct air capture, soil sequestration, and carbon tech the essential role of policy in driving solutions going forward, and the most overused climate jargon that we need to retire. So with that, here are Aaron Burns and Gianna Amador from Carbon 180, sitting down with Gil Jenkins and myself, Chad Reed. Thank you, Aaron and Gianna, for joining us at Climate Positive. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, excited to be here. Aaron, let's start with you. You grew up in the small town of Canova, located in southern West Virginia, and then you made your way to Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is actually not far from my own hometown, and you studied anthropology, I believe, and after graduation, you landed a role in the office of your home state senator, Joe Manchin, who has recently received a renewed prominence as a pivotal swing vote in the 50-50 Senate that we currently have. So could you tell us a little bit more about your early life in West Virginia and what propelled you into the political realm? Yeah, absolutely. I don't get to talk about Canova a lot. Um, and actually, I grew up outside of Canova in a place called Barker Hill. I grew up on the land where my, I think my grandfather was literally born. My grandparents were right there. It's a small town. It's West Virginia. And really not a primary coal region, but sort of a coal shipping area near uh, Huntington, West Virginia. Folks are familiar with like We Are Marshall and more recently, unfortunately, the center of the opioid epidemic. And so it's, I, I think, a really unique place to grow up. And, and in certain ways. But for me, frankly, a lot of the motivation was just to see other places um, and leaving. I didn't plan on going into climate. That wasn't something that I was hearing about, certainly, you know, 20 years ago. And uh, I went to live in a big city. And to me, Pittsburgh was a big city. And I am a huge Pittsburgh fan. Everyone should visit. But I think for me that the experience actually in Pittsburgh and in college was really fundamental to why I wanted to work in policy and eventually climate policy. And it was sort of that realizing the unique experience of growing up in Appalachia and why certain things were true. And there were so many experiences I had going to a place like Carnegie Mellon 
to see just sort of like how wildly different the experiences of my peers were, I think really motivated me to get more interested in questions about how policy shapes people's lives. And I actually didn't get into climate immediately. I graduated in 2011. And so we had the 2010 census and there was a lot of conversation about how things like the census and federal policy shape communities and and the intersection of those things. And so a lot of the work that I did in college was actually around questions like that with cultural anthropology and sort of like, how do how does the census use definitions in ways that are different than communities? And what does that mean for things like block grants and the kinds of support that, that communities get? But I came to DC, actually did not have a job lined up. I worked at a really great restaurant in Columbia Heights and yeah, walked in and was uh, like, you know, I need a job. I need to pay rent. I did a similar thing in Senator Manchin's office where I went in and talked to some folks and interned for a couple months and started after that and got really interested in energy policy. And I think a big piece of this for me was at that time, at least your energy staffer was also your labor staffer. And so again, it was so regional and so local for us of these questions of what is federal energy policy and how can that help mine workers and how can that help transition for communities in coal regions. And I think of my great-grandfather and uh, he was a coal miner starting at 15. He was an electrician in the coal mines and the books of his that I had. And my grandmother grew up in a company town, which is where, you know, the coal company owned the town and like you got paid not in US dollar. Like I have script from my great-grandfather and from my grandmother. And and so those experiences really just, I, I don't know, it felt so common to me growing up that it didn't seem like, you know, this is Something that you don't, you don't think about federal policy when you're a kid and like everybody's grandparent grew up in a, in a company town or, you know, everybody had that experience. But I think coming out of it and going to Pittsburgh, seeing that that was unique, seeing the intersection of policy. And then for me, seeing the intersection, not just of general federal policy, but like climate and energy policy with communities like mine really was a huge motivating factor in getting involved in this. And I think in particular, like what's so exciting about the opportunity we have with carbon removal right now. Yeah, it's, it's actually interesting. My great-grandfather was also in the coal industry, and he had some illnesses later in life, and the coal companies didn't really take care of them, at least not him, and it's really unfortunate that that's, that's happened. Gianna, let's turn to you. You grew up in the Central Valley of California before finding your way to UC Berkeley, where you studied environmental policy and economics, and immediately upon graduation, you teamed up with Noah Deitch, also of UC Berkeley fame and a former classmate of mine to co-found the Center for Carbon Removal, which is now Carbon 180. Could you tell us more about your early life in the Central Valley and what propelled you into environmental policy activism so early in your career? So I grew up in Turlock, California, which is actually located in one of the top agriculture producing counties in the entire country. It's a region where really almost everyone who lives there, their life is embedded in the agriculture industry in some way, even if you're not a farmer or rancher or agriculture producer yourself, um, really the whole economy sort of revolves around agriculture. Um, and that was true for my family as well. Um, when I was in high school, and I guess even before that, I was very involved in 4-H um, and Future Farmers of America, which are both groups that really focus on preparing you know, students or young people for careers in the agriculture industry. And I think through that experience, I learned a lot about the challenges that the agriculture industry is facing and the challenges that rural communities are facing. And I think what sort of stood out to me in those situations was really questions around sustainability. And I think in particular, being in the California Central Valley, 
water is a huge issue. When you drive down the highway of like the California 99, you see these signs that say like Congress created Dust Bowl. And those are very much relics of like 2008. But I think really ingrained for me from the beginning was the way that farmers have a very, very close and connected relationship to our land and to our climate and one that makes them actually really vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. And I think I saw that as well when um, I was in high school and I worked for a farm called Sympadary Family Farms. And, you know, there were a lot of conversations that were happening around how do we adapt to drought that's happening? How do we adapt to increased temperatures that are making it more and more difficult for us to grow our main crop, which at the time was almonds? And so I think that sort of set the stage for me thinking about environmental issues. And when I went to to Cal, um, I grew up a huge Cal fan, so it was a little bit of a no-brainer for me to go Bears. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> um, I became really interested in particularly climate and renewable energy because there were a lot of conversations at the time sort of revolved around this concept of green industrial policy, which was really a frame shift for me in the way that I was thinking about climate change. Growing up in the California Central Valley, I think people are afraid to you know, talk about climate change or it's framed in this very negative way of you are doing something wrong and so you need to stop doing it. And this concept of green industrial policy was really focused on you know, the experience of renewable energy with wind and solar and how we think about deploying technologies in ways that really benefit the communities and not just help fight climate change, but actually create really material community benefits, whether that be health outcomes, economic outcomes. And I think that was really compelling to me. So when I met Noah and we started sort of diving into carbon removal, I saw it as a really big opportunity to engage the agriculture sector in something that was really solutions oriented, was focused on opportunity. And that was just so compelling. Now, it's interesting, you both seem to come from more rural backgrounds and you have firsthand experience with the either the physical impacts of climate change or the economic impacts of, of transitioning our economy to one that fully addresses climate change. I guess, Aaron, it was around your time in, in Senator Manchin's office, I think 2015, 16, that you met Noah and Gianna as they were perhaps the only folks at the time out there who were advocating for policies focused on incentivizing the removal of carbon. So could you tell us more about uh, your initial engagement with them and how you teamed up with them? Yeah, I met Noah in 2015. He came to meet with me in the Senate when I was working in Senator Manchin's office. And at the time, I was working a lot on point source carbon capture, in particular in the electricity sector, but uh, hadn't been asked about carbon removal very much. And so Noah came in and told me all about this, and it sounded great. But I will say, you meet with a lot of people and you don't know. I don't, I'm not a technology expert. I was like, is this legitimate? Is this guy just like, who knows? I don't know this guy. Um, <laughs> and he was a good sport in that I said, you know, do you mind talking to this other person who I trusted and who I knew knew the technological space really well to see, yeah, is this real? Is this something where we should be spending our time? And he totally, of course, checked out. And so we ended up writing an early carbon removal amendment together to the version of the energy bill that was moving at that time in 2015. And it really just kicked off a lot of partnership. I think for me, it was something where it did feel like this was an area where one, federal policy could have a huge impact and two, that was really underserved. And for me, I kept, you know, even after I left the Senate, before I came to Carbon 180, I kept coming to Carbon 180 because 
I'm a policy person. I'm not somebody who has started a carbon removal company. I'm not somebody who has talked to ag producers on the ground about why they aren't implementing these practices. I'm not a project developer who knows what the financing challenges are. And to me, you know, I could have written a policy on my own that just sort of took what worked for wind and solar and then just copy and paste DAC in there or director capture or something else. And that's going to be okay. Uh, And maybe that'll work sometimes. But I think, you know, to write really fantastic policy, you need to know what's happening in real time and like, what are the actual barriers and like, how are you going to do it in a way that's going to like help a lot of companies and a lot of producers and not just the folks who can afford a government affairs team and, and all of those questions. And so I just found myself always going to Carbon 180. And it was something where at the time, I think they had less policy capacity. And so we would just team up. And I think like, you know, Noah would be out in DC once a quarter and we'd have like this really ridiculous whiteboard of ideas and plans and all of that. So uh, it was just something where I, I, yeah, I found myself constantly coming to Carbon 180 for that just like deep level of expertise on carbon removal. And Carbon 180 has evolved quite a bit since you all came together, right? I mean, you changed your name, then you changed your primary focus, I think, from technology innovation to policy innovation. And then you moved the entire organization from the Bay Area, San Francisco, to uh, to D.C. Could you tell us a little bit about what drove some of these organizational pivots? You know, when we started Carbon 180, which was then the Center for Carbon Removal in 2015, we were looking at a very different field. And really, our goal when we started was just to bring carbon removal into the mainstream climate conversation. We, you know, we found in these original conversations that no one actually knew what carbon removal was. And so our, our name actually wasn't very helpful for that. But I think we've seen our greatest strength as an organization so far is really about being agile and to be really effective problem solvers based on what we're seeing happening in the field. And just because you know we've seen carbon removal now sort of become this core tenet of climate action, And I think to Aaron's point earlier, we did a lot of work with technology developers, project financers, academics who work in this space. And I think what we heard from those people over and over is that policy was sort of the key enabling factor that would really help bring these solutions to scale. So we saw policy as that huge lever for change and sort of just continuously moved our work towards those goals. And from the outside, maybe it seems like sort of more dramatic organizational pivots, but I think it's really been an evolution um, towards using policy as our core lever for change, while also keeping our connection to, you know, our academic roots, to the innovation and entrepreneurship that's happening in Silicon Valley, which really, I think, provides a strong foundation for making sure that we make really, really strong and effective policy. Yeah. And actually, part of the reason we see such an opportunity in policy is because of that early work that they did that was coming to people like me and others and saying, this is what carbon removal is, um, putting up with us when we made them go talk to somebody else to make sure it was real. But like, you know, getting early policy success wins. And this is something where I remember working with them at my previous job and us having to really push and say, no, I promise carbon use is important. I promise carbon removal is important. Like you really should spend some time on this. And oftentimes being pushed aside. And now everybody wants to work on carbon removal. It's so central. And it's like, without that early work that they had done to put us in this position, like we just wouldn't see the success and the level of success and interest that we see from this administration, from others, if they hadn't had that vision back in 2015 and and kept pushing that for those first few years. 
Yeah, absolutely. I remember when we graduated, it was 2015, Noah and I from, from our MBA programs and, and Noah was starting this organization and we were all just like, wow, that's very forward thinking, but you're you're really way ahead of the curve here. Um, and so it's really encouraging now to see so many folks uh, focused on this issue. I know we do want to jump into the policy weeds, but before we do, I'd like to back up and maybe discuss a little bit about why we need to focus on removing carbon from the atmosphere at all. Shouldn't we really be focused on reducing our current emissions? Can you talk about the difference between those two aspects of it? You know, when we're talking about meeting our our climate goals, really folks think about meeting temperature targets. So they really encompass a lot more than just the number itself. They represent a sort of larger set of climate impacts. But what we're aiming to meet as a globe is really to limit warming to below two degrees Celsius with more ambitious goals around 1.5 degrees Celsius. And what we found when we were started in 2015 is really that basically all of the scenarios, all of the climate models say we actually need to remove carbon in order to meet those temperature goals. And I like to think about it as a bathtub. So our atmosphere is a bathtub and we're sort of at risk of this bathtub overflowing. So there are a couple of things you can do to address that problem. First and foremost, you should turn off the tap immediately. And that's really around reducing emissions. And that is absolutely critical and the most important thing that we can do to fight climate change. At the same time, should probably get a mop and clean up the water that's on the floor. And that's really about adaptation. So like, how do we deal with the effects that we're already seeing today? And then this third piece is really about how do we increase the capacity of the drain? So through our natural carbon cycle, we know that natural ecosystems as biological systems, as well as geologic systems naturally remove carbon. But are there ways that we can speed up those natural processes, bolster our carbon sinks and remove that carbon? And so we're really focused on that drain piece because we know it's a critical part of climate action. And because we've actually delayed climate action for so long, it's even more and more critical that we develop these solutions. I love that analogy. And you actually explained it better than I've ever heard it explained. So thank you for that. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) And so, but wasn't carbon capture first used by the fossil fuel industry itself for enhanced oil recovery? So how do we think about the sort of technology whereby we're, you know, we're putting a carbon capture device on top of a smokestack to avoid emissions that otherwise would have gone into the atmosphere versus other carbon removal technologies that actually suck carbon from the atmosphere, either naturally or or through some technological process, and then store it or use it for some other purpose. How do we think about the differences between those two? Yeah. So I mentioned before I was working on carbon capture, and it's so interesting to hear how folks perceive the role of the fossil fuel industry in things like point source carbon capture, because I think for a long time, we were like, maybe we can get them to like this, or maybe we can get political support from them for this. And that was not what was happening. And in fact, if you look back at things like the 45Q tax incentive, or you look at CCS bills, carbon capture bills before 2015, they're democratic bills. This was not something that I will say fossil fuel industry folks were coming to Manchin's office and me and saying, support CCS. These were people coming in and saying, like, maybe CCS can play a role in meeting climate goals. Like, this is a climate technology. I'll say also most enhanced oil recovery, most of that actually happens with naturally occurring CO2. So CO2 can be mined. There are natural domes of CO2. You can mine it, use that CO2 for enhanced oil recovery. And so I just want to start with that. There was actually a really great article from Akshat Rathi who said, the real concern around carbon capture and carbon removal fossil fuel industry is them actually not doing it. That right now you actually 
oftentimes see more spending on ads around CCS than you do around things like CCS projects. So I think that's really important to, to think about when you're talking about this. But we are talking about something different with carbon removal and things like direct air capture, but some of the same challenges that you raised around the role of the fossil fuel industry, the role of things like enhanced oil recovery are very similar. And so for us, uh, I think this is really central. So we put out a blog post, I think now about two years ago, saying what is the role of the oil industry in, in carbon capture and carbon removal? And we basically at the time were saying, you know, we're not sure. It's complex because some of the arguments you'll hear are around they have a lot of expertise and they have a lot of capital. And, you know, could you reorient that capital to be about removing carbon rather than emitting it? But then on the other hand, and this was before our environmental justice initiative launch, but you'll see a lot of similar questions, but oil companies have committed human rights violations. You know, they spend a ton of money stopping climate action. And so what does it look like to build that trust? Can you rebuild that trust and what role should they have? And so I think for us, those continue to be really central questions. And I mentioned this, but a little over a year ago, we launched our environmental justice initiative and our deputy director for policy, Yvette Kosar, leads that work. But we're currently developing an organizational position on enhanced oil recovery. And I think for us, it gets to the core of this of, you know, we talk a lot about the need for this for climate and about the CO2 reduction piece of this. But it's really essential for us that we think about deploying carbon removal in ways that are good for communities, that are good for people, that redress environmental injustices. And I think there is an opportunity to do that. But I think we have to map out a much more ambitious policy roadmap for that. That's great, Aaron. I just wanted to follow up specifically on the role of oil companies. I'm sure you saw the news on Monday that Exxon is pitching a $100 billion project for capturing carbon emissions of big industrial plants in the Houston area, and then they want to bury that deep in the Gulf of Mexico. What they're saying and pitching is that in order to do this, they need a price on carbon. Could you give us some context on what you think that announcement means? I think that's complicated for us. I mean, I, I would say, first of all, I think, it, you know, similar to other projects we've seen announced, I think, one, we're excited that we're talking about, like, millions of tons of CO2 that we're talking about capturing and removing. And I will say, I think, in the industrial space, a lot of the carbon capture conversation historically has been focused on things like electricity and power generation. I think it is really important to talk about the role of CCS in industrial emissions, because a lot of times you don't have great ways to decarbonize steel and cement production. So CCS can play a really big role. Real, real quick, CCS, just for folks who may not know, oh, carbon sorry. capture and storage, right? Yeah, sorry, CCS. So carbon capture and storage. And actually, this gets to your, to your original question is, you know, we talk about carbon removal, which is pulling carbon out of the atmosphere that's already out there. So you can do that through things like direct air capture, which are big machines that pull CO2 from the ambient air. You can do it through land-based approaches. Gianna touched on things like soil carbon sequestration, where you change uh, certain ag practices to sequester more carbon in soils. Through forestry, I think that's something that folks are familiar with in concept. But, you know, point source carbon capture, where you're talking about putting machines on the smokestacks of industrial and power plants to prevent those emissions in the first place. And again, things like steel and cement production, there aren't necessarily you need really high temperatures, for example, that can be hard to, to electrify those processes. Or when you produce cement, you actually just the chemical reaction releases CO2, so releases carbon dioxide. So you have to think about the role of some of these technologies like carbon capture and carbon removal and direct air capture in decarbonizing those really hard, kind of sticky pieces of the emissions pie. You know, it's not just the electricity sector. 
But I think for us, again, the question comes down to sort of, do you have trust in those communities about the projects you're going to build? Who's going to profit from them? Are these going to prolong the life of projects that are causing, you know, non-CO2 harm, you know, harms not based on those carbon emissions to those communities? Are you... Uh, doing this in a way that's going to bolster things like union jobs. Do you have good relationships with your union? It's really important to make those considerations and not just focused on the CO2 emissions. And so I think for us, this is something that's really, again, I think central to us grappling with like, how do we want to see a carbon removal industry and a carbon removal sector scale up? So Gianna, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. No, I think that's right. I would say in some, the devil's in the details, like it's great to see these companies try to invest in decarbonization. But like Aaron said, it's really about a much broader picture beyond just tons. It's about how we develop those projects and prioritize community well-being. I guess with that in mind, we at Hannon Armstrong are huge proponents of putting a robust and rising price on carbon. And we favor a price on carbon where you return the bulk of those revenues, uh, an equal lump sum payments to citizens or direct it more so to low and moderate income folks. We think that in doing so, you make it much more progressive as opposed to regressive tax. There's been a lot of business momentum for this kind of solution. Does Carbon 180 have a position on a price on carbon? We're going to talk later about more center of the bat policies like 45Q, but I wonder What's your thinking on the role of a price on carbon in the ultimate climate policy solutions we need? Yeah, I think carbon prices, carbon tax, cap and trade systems can be really supportive technologies to drive down emissions. That being said, I think, you know, the history that we've seen for things like California's cap and trade system, it can really be only sort of one piece of our climate strategy, especially considering the speed and breadth of which we need to sort of decarbonize our economy. Um, And so I think we really need to also consider pairing something like a carbon price or a carbon tax with additional complementary policies. Because a carbon tax is really about how do we deploy mature technologies that can decarbonize, I think in particular, like the energy and electricity sectors. But I think there are so many other tools, especially in the federal policy toolkit, thinking about research and development, early demonstration projects, infrastructure, other deployment mechanisms. And so I think it's really one piece of the puzzle. I think another thing around carbon taxes is that they really put climate action into this sort of cost minimizing framework. And I think personally, what I've seen get more traction is really thinking about how can we maximize the benefits from climate action, which is sort of this shift that we're seeing with a lot of the conversations around the Green New Deal. It's like, how do we pair climate solutions with a lot of our other goals around public health, strong economies, again, good community well-being. And we're able to sort of craft some of these other policy levers with those goals in mind. I think we totally agree with you there. What I would say is that we also need that price signal to drive the investment and that transformation, and we've got to make it fair. But we also need aggressive standards. We also need investment in R&D. We also need community-based resiliency grants. Frankly, we need everything because the point you made earlier, the delay. So let's get down into the immediate action that's happening for carbon removal and sequestration in Washington. Could you give our listeners an overview of the rather esoteric but critically important 45Q tax credits for carbon capture projects and why those are essential to advancing deployment? I think there's been some updated bills of late and 
sort of what are you all hoping to achieve uh, if there is a play to put enhanced 45Q credits in a Build Back Better American jobs plan? So 45Q tax incentives, these are something that I've been around for a pretty long time, but um, back in 2018, there was an update. And 45Q, by the way, is a reference to the tax code. So there's like 45J and you know 48C, and these are different references to the US tax code. So 45Q is a tax incentive that in 2018 was updated with a few really important things. One is it increased the value. So it went to $50 per ton for CO2 that's captured and stored directly underground in saline formations, and then $35 per ton for CO2 that's captured stored, but in between used for some purpose. And then it made some changes to threshold. So how big does your plant need to be to qualify? So how many tons of CO2 are you capturing each year to qualify? Some of the limits were a little too high for things like industrial. Uh, I mentioned before that carbon capture had been really focused on the power sector, less on the industrial sector. Industrial applications, especially certain kinds of them, tend to be smaller projects. So it lowered the threshold for how big those projects had to be. It made some changes so that you had more flexibility with sort of like if you had tax liability or not, or you know maybe a partner in the project could have tax liability. And then the thing that we were really excited about and that I give... 95% of the credit to Carbon 180 before I was there is around including director capture for the first time and including carbon utilization outside of enhanced oil recovery for the first time. This previously was not something that director capture developers could take advantage of. That changed in February of 2018, those updates to it. And again, that was, I think, Carbon 180 basically single-handedly spending time in Congress and working with folks like Senator Whitehouse's office. So that was really pivotal, I think. That's super important because basically what you're doing is you're providing this incentive and this value for project developers who are saying, you know, we don't have a price on carbon. And actually, it's really interesting that this came right after that carbon price conversation, because when the bill was introduced, it was a bipartisan set of members at the time. So the Democrats were Heidi Heitkamp and Sheldon Whitehouse. The Republicans were Senator Barrasso of Wyoming, Senator Capito of West Virginia. And they all went up to the podium to talk about why they supported this bill. And it was super interesting because you could see that things like carbon capture and carbon removal were a place where you could see your own priorities and values reflected back to you. So members like Barrasso or Capito would go up there and say, look, this is a future forward for my coal-centric state. This can be something where Wyoming can lead, and this can be something where West Virginia can lead. Senator Whitehouse got up there and said, this is basically a price on carbon. Like what we're saying is $50 per ton for carbon dioxide. And that has obviously been a huge priority of his. And so his interest in this obviously was climate. And he saw this policy as a way to get a price on carbon. And so you've continued, I think, to see a lot of that really broad engagement of 45Q. Like this is something where, again, folks can really see uh, many of their priorities reflected in them. So there are lots of potential updates we could see. We put out a blog post a couple weeks ago outlining what we'd like to see. Um, in particular, there are a couple of priorities for us. One is more money for direct air capture. So back in 2018 and before that, 2015 to 2018, we just needed to get DAC in there. Like this was in the explain what carbon removal is era. So getting DAC added was an enormous win. But now we've, we sort of have the opportunity to say, yeah, but direct air capture and carbon capture are really at different points in their maturity as far as technologies go. 
Carbon capture at a point source has been around for decades. Directive capture is much more nascent. There's less history on the technology side. It's less commercial. Um, there are fewer plants. And so we actually need more money for direct air capture. The Rhodium Group put out a report that looked at what value should you have, and they found probably about $180 per ton for direct air capture is the right number to get a lot of these plants going um, and really keep it scaling in line with climate goals. A couple of the other things that we think are really important are also lowering the threshold. So I mentioned before that they did lower the thresholds in 2018. They made more plants eligible. But again, we're talking about direct air capture. and We're talking about point source carbon capture. It's not just different levels of maturity of the technology. It's also different sizes. And so we're really excited that carbon engineering has a 1 million ton a year plant being planned uh, in Texas, but lots of these projects are in the tens of thousands of tons range. And not only do we want to see multiple technologies move forward, but we also think there's a value in thinking about applications for modular technologies or community scale director capture or you know, you saw there's a funding opportunity announcement released by the Department of Energy's Office of Science in March that looked at things like integration with HVAC systems. And so you want to make sure that this is also really helpful to newer, more innovative technologies. And I think that the last thing I'll say is a lot of the recommendations we're making are keeping in mind the sort of history of things like 45Q, where you have a policy that was based on what is the industry today and how much money do they need and what are the technologies out there? And then we had to kind of keep going back. Those updates in 2018 took about seven years of advocacy. We can't spend seven years every time we need to update climate policies. And so what we really care about across climate policy development, and in particular, when we're thinking about 45Q, there are some specific recommendations around this is making sure these are really durable policies that are really flexible, that are going to be thinking about not just today's technologies, but where innovators are going to be in five or 10 years, and that are going to require the least amount of sort of political capital to go in and, uh, you know, that that we're not going to have to go in and, and spend a bunch of time just updating this because, oh, we didn't know, you know, that five years down the road, something was going to be totally different. That was a really long winded answer. I love 45Q. That's, that's your mistake. Number one, ask me about 45Q. We're going to put all this in the show notes. I've got at least eight things by my count that are definitely going in the show notes. So, but one of the criticisms of 45Q that I've heard is that it incentivizes certain facilities like coal facilities that otherwise would have been retired to be repowered, so to speak, or stay online longer than they otherwise would. Just curious if you've heard those criticisms, what do you have to say to those? So first of all, a lot of our coal fleet Uh, This is digging back into my mansion days factoids. I think the average age of your coal plant is like 50 or 60. I mean, it's like 50 years or something. I can't remember the exact number, but it's older than you think. Folks are not building new coal plants. And you're also not retrofitting 40 or 50-year-old coal plants with really expensive CCS technology or carbon capture technology. I don't think we really see a lot of that. And I think, you know, $50 per ton, that's a potentially good amount of money. I don't know that if you're a project developer that you're like, here's a 50-year-old coal plant. I'm going to install like hundreds of millions of dollars of new equipment to get that $50 per ton. So I haven't seen that bear out. Um, I do think, though, that it gets to that, again, that really central question for us of how do you incentivize these technologies in ways that not just widen that drain to Gianna's analogy, really fantastic analogy, but also make sure we're turning off that tap. I actually want to talk a little bit about the technologies. There are natural carbon removal technologies, planting trees, for instance, uh, changing the way we farm to increase the soil sequestration capacities of the earth, biochar. 
Maybe you can talk a little about these natural methods. I know we've talked a lot about direct air capture, but maybe the natural methods now too. Yeah, absolutely. So on the natural side, there are a lot of solutions that are really promising and, and in a lot of ways have had billions of years of like quote unquote R&D. These are systems that use photosynthesis to naturally draw carbon dioxide from the air and store it either in plant biomass like trees or in our soils themselves. And then there are things like biochar, which are sort of a mix, I would say, of technological and biological solutions. And there are actually a lot of advantages that come with these nature-based solutions. I think one, they're really low cost and we have a lot of familiarity in particularly on the forestry side, um, on reforesting and managing forests for carbon sequestration. They also come with a lot of co-benefits. So on the forestry side, forests obviously help provide clean air. In urban communities, they can provide a lot of forest cover. They help filter our water and provide all of these ecosystem services that are not only good for sort of the ecosystems in the natural world, but really, really good for our communities. On the soil carbon side, the practices that farmers can employ to store carbon in their soils actually have a huge amount of on-farm benefits. They build soil health, they improve water filtration, they help build resilience to things like drought and flooding, which are huge problems across the United States today. Um, and they also can you know, improve farmers' bottom lines. They can potentially improve yields, reduce the need for synthetic inputs. And so in a lot of ways, I think people refer to these nature-based solutions as sort of win-wins. Like, we should do them for a multitude of reasons, including to help fight climate change. I think on the sort of flip of that, there are a lot of challenges that come with natural solutions around being able to ensure that we have durability of carbon in natural systems, especially thinking about, for example, in the West, the forest fires that we had last year. How do we make sure in the face of climate change that we're providing one durable incentives for land management so that people don't change practices and then change back the next year and just release all that carbon back in the atmosphere. But also how do we manage these lands in a way that are really resilient to climate change? Because the climate impacts actually encourage a release of carbon, which sort of makes this really, really tough. Right. And then also there's there are carbon technologies out there that once you, you capture the CO2, often using direct air capture or some other mechanical way that you actually use the CO2 and make products from it. Can you talk a little bit about these sorts of technologies and how they can contribute to the overall solution? You know, I think for me, there are a couple of really exciting things about carbon tech. One is they can provide a market for the capture of carbon dioxide that's going to help you also deploy direct air capture. The other thing is that they can help, you know, we talked a little bit about things like the industrial sector and places that are hard to decarbonize, like building materials, cement and concrete fuels, and they can provide lower carbon alternatives. So um, we have a paper that we put out at the end of last year looking at how the federal government might be a purchaser for a low carbon cement and concrete. And again, this is something where I think it's something like 8% of emissions come from cement and concrete. So here you have this opportunity where you can deploy technologies that help uh, reduce industrial emissions, but you can also use those captured emissions to create low carbon alternatives. You know, this is similar to things like, you know, when we look at transportation and in particular things like aviation, there are a lot of, of challenges in decarbonizing it. But one thing you could do is capture carbon dioxide to create low carbon aviation fuels and companies like Lanza Tech 
have already been doing this. They partnered with uh, Virgin. They flew a plane from Orlando to London using CO2-based fuels. And then I think the other thing I'll mention about this that's really exciting and I think hits on several of the points we've talked about and thinking about how do you deploy these technologies and practices in ways that are good for communities, create good paying jobs, good paying union jobs, is we did a market sizing report back in 2018 looking at the total available market for carbon tech goods and found that in the U.S. alone, there's a $1 trillion total available market. So there's also this really big economic opportunity with carbon tech. Okay, so we're going to turn to our hot seat in a second, but I have to ask this question about an article I read about you all in The Atlantic last month. So for our (laughs) listeners, the headline of this article was, quote, why celebrities are agog over this tiny climate think tank. A -a one-of-a-kind Washington nonprofit has become a hit with musicians selling crypto art. So could you explain this phenomenon of famous and influential celebrities selling their crypto art and pledging the proceeds to Carbon 180. Explain might be a high bar for what I'm about to do. Um, and I think you'll <laughs> see that reflected in the article. Uh, I will say we first found out that Grimes, so Grimes was, I think, really the first person to pledge funds to us. And I think we found out that she knew about us originally because we have an Instagram, Carbon 180 handle, and eBay tagged us and a partnership they were doing where she was creating this merchandise. This was before the NFT piece uh, and said, the proceeds are some amount of proceeds. All the proceeds are going to Carbon 180. We were like, wow, okay, Grimes knows who we are. And then we find out about the NFT sale Um, and Grimes, I think Halsey, a couple of others have pledged these pieces. And I think um, we don't know why Carbon 180 in particular was of interest. But, you know, I think that this is something where folks are really understanding. I think this is kind of reflective and part of like carbon removal as a whole becoming more mainstream that folks are realizing that the complexities around things like NFTs and other ways in which we like move around in the world have climate impacts and that they want to make sure that when they're thinking about what they're doing, that they're also supporting work like ours to reduce emissions. So it's been interesting, all this attention come down from a lot of these celebrities and being wrapped up sort of in navigating in real time the questions, the very real questions around NFTs and climate impacts and what that means. So it's been an experience. Uh, you should ask us this question too again in like a year and see where we are on, on NFTs and, and also what other cool celebrities have become agog with us. All right, let's turn to the hot seat. So first question, Gianna. The most insightful book or article I read last month was? There was an article in Politico, particularly about some of the challenges that environmental NGOs face when engaging with environmental justice orgs um, and a lot of the history behind climate philanthropy, racial justice, environmental justice, um, and how we just need to do a lot better moving forward. And I feel like that was definitely very impactful in sort of the way that Carbon 180 is thinking about taking advantage of this moment. Yeah, I saw that too. It was a powerful history of all the important issues that we need to tackle. Aaron, same question. The most insightful book or article I read last month was? The Atlantic article. Okay, the Atlantic article. Very good. Yes, appropriate. Okay, Aaron, next one. If you really knew me, you would know 
If you really knew me, you know that I've been secretly knitting while we talk. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's amazing. That's, That's very impressive. It's a habit I picked up in high school. It helps me focus. All right, Gianna, same question. Fill in the blank. If you really knew me, you would know. If you really knew me, you would come to me for either strong food opinions or restaurant recommendations. I feel like those are those are what I'm known for. <laughs> yeah, I knew what Gianna, when she said you would come to me for, and I was like, it's going to be a food opinion. <laughs> yeah, I'm not proud of it, but I have like thousands of tags on Google Maps for restaurants I want to try or have been to or feel strongly about. <laughs> okay, so we've talked a lot of jargon in our session today. Next question, Gianna, what is the climate or energy-related jargon, word, phrase, or acronym that you think we should absolutely ban from our lexicon going forward? This is a tough one. My personal vendetta is against a very difficult-to-pronounce acronym, which is L-U-L-U-C-F, which I guess is not that hard, but I just like always trip up on it. It's land use, land use change, and forestry. Um, so we use it a lot in particularly international contexts to talk about land use. Um, and it just like doesn't roll off the tongue. You know, I think we could do better. Okay. That's a good one. I hadn't heard that. Aaron, same question to you. I think carbon utilization, let's just say carbon use. I feel like that's like indicative of like, let's just simplify it. Like I get that, you know, if you want to be really wonky and technical, you can like parse out utilization versus something else. But like, let's all just simplify. Carbon use is, is informative enough. <laughs> okay, we've arrived at our final question. Aaron, fill in the blank. To me, climate positive means... Taking a broader approach to sort of policies that move us towards those climate goals that Gianna outlined when we were talking about the sort of how carbon removal fits into this. In the bathtub analogy is climate positive is all of those policy pathways that we can take to, to move towards those climate goals. Awesome. Gianna, same question. To me, climate positive means? For me, climate positive is really around optimism for climate solutions. I think that's something that's been a little bit of a thread throughout this conversation is we have so many tools in our toolkit to fight climate change, and now we just got to do the hard work to develop them and deploy them and do so in a way that really builds a better world um, in addition to helping solve climate change. Well said, and we need more of that. Well, I want to thank you both, Aaron and Gianna, for coming to Climate Positive. This was a really fun discussion. We are huge fans of what you're all doing at Carbon 180 and let's work together to drive some great policy outcomes in the months ahead. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you so much. Climate Positive is produced by Hannah Armstrong. Tell us what you thought about the conversation. You can send us show ideas by tweeting at us at Hannah Armstrong or send us a note at climatepositive at hannahnarmstrong.com. If you like the show, feel free to give us a rating or share with a friend. It helps others learn about the show and our climate positive mission. I'm Chad Reed, and this is Climate Positive.